Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, January 19th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's top stories. Several Ukrainian officials are killed in a helicopter crash. An Italian suspect strikes a deal in an EU corruption scandal. A Macau gambling kingpin is jailed for 18 years. NGOs in Afghanistan resume some operations with female staff. Trump says his first 2024 campaign appearance will be in South Carolina. Florida Governor DeSantis proposes permanently banning all COVID restrictions. France braces for a Black Thursday general strike. Trump's campaign asks Facebook for reinstatement. Canada recommends a maximum of two drinks per week. And St. Martin approves a plan to cull its entire population of vervet monkeys. We start our podcast with day 329 of the Ukrainian conflict, where there's a deadly helicopter crash at a Kiev kindergarten. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Pravda, the Associated Press, The Guardian, Ukraine Forum, and TASS. A helicopter crash in the Kiev suburb of Bovary killed at least 17 people, including senior Ukrainian officials, local authorities said on Wednesday. The crash reportedly on the grounds of a kindergarten killed all nine people aboard the emergency services helicopter, police said. This included Ukrainian Interior Minister Denis Monasteriski, his deputy Yevin Yenin, and State Secretary of the Ministry of Internal Affairs Yuri Lubkovich. A total of 25 people, including 11 children, were reported injured. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky confirmed the deaths of the children. The pain is unspeakable, he said. The helicopter fell on the territory of one of the kindergartens. Zelensky added, My condolences to all the families and friends of the victims, Denis, Yevin, Yuri, the team of the Ministry of Internal Affairs, true patriots of Ukraine. May they rest in peace. May all those whose lives were taken this black morning rest in peace. Earlier in the week, Zelensky gave a series of interviews with Russian media where he spoke Russian throughout. He continued to impose strict conditions for a peace deal, but said a compromise may be reached in contested areas of the Donbass, as well as on Ukraine's ambitions of joining NATO, if Russia withdrew to pre-invasion borders and allowed Ukrainians to vote in a referendum that could take a year to organize. Elsewhere, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov lambasted Zelensky and his potential peace proposal on Wednesday, describing negotiations with him as currently untenable. Lavrov said Zelensky puts forward completely absurd initiatives, like a 10-point plan, where everything is piled up. Food security, energy security, biological security, withdrawal of Russian troops from everywhere, Russia's repentance, tribunal, and condemnation. Thank you, Melissa. Here on the Improve the News podcast, we like to separate the narrative spin from the facts of this story. You just heard the facts, and I'm going to start us off with a narrative spin, beginning with narrative A, which is provided by Pravda. At this stage of the tragedy, it is too early to say what are the preliminary causes of this crash. All that can be confirmed is at least 17 people, including children, lost their lives in this horrific incident. And Narrative B is also from Pravda. The Security Service of Ukraine is conducting a criminal investigation and all possibilities are being considered, including violation of flight rules, a technical malfunction, and possible deliberate actions to destroy the helicopter. 
And from time to time, we get a statistical nerd narrative provided by the folks at the Metaculous Prediction Community, and they say there's a 10% chance that Ukraine will receive a security guarantee from another country before 2024. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. Our next story concerns a Qatar EU corruption scandal and an Italian suspect is cooperating. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, BBC News, Euro, Golf, and Reuters. Antonio Panzeri, a former Italian member of the European Parliament, or the MEP, has struck a plea deal with Belgian prosecutors over the alleged bribery scheme between MEPs and foreign governments. Panzeri was among four EU lawmakers detained for their alleged involvement. Panzeri, along with former European Parliament Vice President Eva Kali from Greece, her partner Francesco Giorgi, and lobbyist Nicolo Figa Talamanca, was charged in December after police seized around 1.5 million euros, or $1.6 million, in cash during multiple raids on an apartment, a house, and a hotel. Two more suspects have now been implicated with Belgian authorities requesting that the immunity for socialist MEPs Mark Taraballa from Belgium and Andrea Cozzolino from Italy be removed. Panzeri has reportedly confessed to giving Taraballa over €120,000 for Qatar-related issues. According to a Belgian arrest warrant for Panzeri's wife and daughter, the former MEP is, quote, suspected of intervening politically for the benefit of Qatar and Morocco. In exchange for money, he allegedly set up a campaign group called Fight Impunity to use as a front for the scheme. As part of the plea deal, Panziri will face a reduced sentence of one year in prison, some of it may be reduced further through wearing a monitoring bracelet, and lose an estimated 1 million euros in fines and asset confiscation. The deal is part of the EU's repentance statute created in 2018. The news comes as a former tax consultant for Panzeri, Monica Rosanna Bellini, was arrested by the Guardia di Fanzana tax police in Milan at the request of Belgian authorities. She faces charges of criminal association, corruption, and money laundering. Thank you, Adam, for the facts on that story. And we'll start the spins with a pro-establishment narrative. And this is provided by the European Parliament News. The European Parliament prides itself on being above corruption which is why the vast majority of MEPs not involved in this case have called for swift and concrete measures to be implemented in response to these bribery allegations. These measures have already been called for, such as the Defense of Democracy package, which criminalizes all corruption and issues harsh penalties for any violations. And Breitbart has provided an establishment critical narrative. The irony of these so-called socialist European MEPs engaging in bribery and fraud is incredible, and the few arrests made so far may only be the tip of the iceberg. Up to 60 MEPs could potentially be involved. We can sit back and watch this display of hypocrisy as it unfolds. And now news from Macau as a gambling kingpin is jailed for 18 years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the South China Morning Post, BBC News, Straits Times, Reuters, CNN, and Macau Business. 
On Wednesday, a court in China's special administrative region of Macau sentenced Junket King Alvin Chow to 18 years in jail on 162 charges, including fraud, illegal gambling, and criminal association. A high-profile billionaire gambling kingpin, Chow was found guilty of fraud, running an illegal gambling empire, and operating illegal bets, but was acquitted of money laundering. He denied all wrongdoing during his four-month trial. Prosecutors had accused Chow and 20 co-defendants of running an under-the-table bet syndicate worth $139 billion that swindled Macau out of Hong Kong $1 billion, or $128 million American dollars, over an eight-year period. His defense acknowledged the existence of under-the-table gambling, but noted a lack of direct evidence implicating Chow. The founder of the now-defunct Sun City Group, Macau's biggest operators of junkets, Chow reportedly organized trips to bring wealthy gamblers from mainland China to Macau, the only Chinese city where casino gambling is legal, until December 2021, a month after his arrest. According to state media, the court ordered Chow to pay the Macau government more than $830 million and $22.7 million to $98 million to five casino operators, saying their revenue took a hit due to Sun City not declaring the full extent of its gains. Chow's legal team says he was disappointed by the court's ruling and is likely to appeal, alleging a lack of evidence for the illegal gambling and fraud charges. A 20-day period has been given to all defendants to appeal. Melissa, thank you for the facts on that story. We have an anti-China narrative, and that's provided by Reuters. Chow's sentence is unfair and signals the end of Macau junkets and VIP gambling. There's no evidence that Sun City ever operated under-the-table multiplier bets or that it was a criminal syndicate, which is probably why it never ran into legal trouble in more than a decade of operating worldwide. The verdict will hit Macau's gambling industry, already reeling because of COVID restrictions, and will make it harder for the city to spring back. And the pro-China narrative is brought to us by Macau Business. Chow's prosecution sends a message that Beijing will no longer tolerate illicit activities in Macau aimed at aiding mainland gamblers and corrupt PRC officials laundering money. Apart from reminding the junket industry that Xi Jinping can pull financial levers on matters of national security, China's anti-corruption drive shows that the PRC will never allow economic power to become concentrated in a small handful of junkets. Do you ever gamble, Adam? No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I just know that if I, it's so addictive and I have a kind of an addictive personality that it's not for me. Yeah, yeah. I did put scratchers in, into my kids' stockings. Oh, year. that's nice. That's a, that's a fun gift. Here's a little piece of, piece of paper that signifies a little bit of hope. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, Merry Christmas, the season of hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we turn our attention to news in Afghanistan where NGOs have resumed some operations with female staff. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, RFI, Archive, Voice of America, France 24, and Radio Free Europe. At least three major aid organizations have partially resumed work in Afghanistan after receiving assurances from Taliban authorities that female staff can work in fields such as health and nutrition. The aid organizations CARE, Save the Children, and International Rescue Committee, or IRC, said that they have resumed their work in the health sector in recent days. 
Their operations had been suspended since the Taliban banned Afghan women from working in the aid sector in late December. While the Taliban's acting Ministry of Economy, which ordered the ban, stated that female health workers return to work in accordance with our religious and cultural values. Negotiations are reportedly underway to also permit women to resume work in other sectors. Meanwhile, hundreds of Afghanistan women are reported to have returned to work for international NGOs. Of the 36 million Afghans, nearly 19 million are facing acute food insecurity, and more than 29 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance. On Monday, a U.N. delegation arrived in Kabul for talks after Security General Antonio Guterres last week condemned the Taliban's crackdown on women's and girls' rights, accusing them of establishing a system of gender-based apartheid. After the Taliban returned to power in August of 2021, they gradually reinstated restrictions on women's freedoms. On December 20th, female students were banned from attending universities followed by an order preventing NGOs from employing female staff. Thank you, Adam, for the facts on that story. We'll start the spins with an establishment critical narrative from the national news. The outrage over the restriction of women's rights under the Taliban regime is entirely justified. However, it is the families of Afghan women who suffered from the withdrawal of some 158 agencies that suspended their operations over the ban on women's staffing. Isolating Afghanistan is counterproductive, and halting aid work contradicts the principles of neutrality and humanitarianism. This played into the Taliban's hands. And the New York Times has written a pro-establishment narrative. Through their repressive policies, the Taliban have deprived many Afghan women of their livelihoods, multiplying the plight of millions of Afghans. The fact that women may now work for NGOs in the health sector is no more than a first step. The general ban on employment has made the work of many aid organizations in the country almost impossible and violates humanitarian principles. In our next story, Trump will make a 2024 campaign stop in South Carolina. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News and NBC. Former U.S. President Donald Trump, who announced his candidacy for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination in November, will appear at a public event in South Carolina on January 28th, his first since the start of his campaign. Having limited recent appearances to his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida, he will be joined at the State House by several South Carolina Republican lawmakers, including Senator Lindsey Graham and Governor Henry McMaster, where he's expected to reveal his campaign's state leadership team in front of about 500 guests. The visit will come amid rumors that two prominent South Carolinians are mulling challenging him for the GOP nomination. Nikki Haley, the state's former governor and the U.N. ambassador under Trump, and Senator Tim Scott are considered potential primary candidates. So far, Trump is the only GOP candidate to launch a 2024 campaign. On the Democratic side, President Joe Biden hasn't made an official decision, but he has stated his intention to run numerous times. Thank you, Melissa, for the facts in that story. We have a Republican narrative, and it's provided by Breitbart. This is the right time for Trump to kick off the public part of his campaign, as some polls show he still holds a comfortable lead on his competition, while others show a closer race. In South Carolina, Trump enjoys an overflowing amount of support, and this will be a chance for him to bring everyone together to secure the backing he needs in a key early voting state. And here's the Democratic narrative written by Politico. 
It's not like Trump to take such a low-profile approach to anything, let alone a campaign. Yet he's waited months to face a big crowd outside of Florida, and he's even keeping this South Carolina event small. Maybe he's still licking his wounds after so many failed midterm endorsements, and is a bit sheepish about having the same support this time around. I don't really want an image of Trump licking anything. (laughs) Especially sheep. (laughs) No, thank you. Continuing with political news, Ron DeSantis proposes permanently ending COVID restrictions. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Caller, CNN, Fox News, and NBC. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on Tuesday unveiled a plan to permanently end all COVID restrictions. This includes terminating mask and vaccine mandates statewide in schools and businesses. More specifically, it would permanently prohibit vaccine passports in the state and bar employers from hiring or firing based on mRNA jabs. DeSantis said the policy would also protect free speech for medical practitioners. This comes as DeSantis claims he's seeking to keep Florida a refuge of sanity and protect it from the biomedical security state. DeSantis was a proponent of COVID vaccines initially, but has become critical of them more recently. His opponents, meanwhile, have accused him of spreading vaccine misinformation. DeSantis previously called on the state Supreme Court to summon a grand jury to investigate whether pharmaceutical companies criminally misled Floridians regarding vaccine side effects. The request was approved late last month. The new proposal comes after DeSantis signed legislation in 2021 banning school mask mandates and forbidding private employers from implementing vaccine mandates though those provisions are set to expire in July. Thank you, Adam. We'll start the spins with a Democratic narrative, and that comes from Alternet. DeSantis continues to put politics over health. New COVID cases have increased by 90% in his state over the past two weeks. Yet his response is to attempt to strip private businesses of their right to institute health policies that'll keep employees safe from a deadly virus. It's unconscionable. And Town Hall is providing a Republican narrative. COVID science isn't settled, and too many civil liberties have been trampled on or willfully given up in the face of fear-mongering and the politicization of a health crisis. DeSantis' proposal is the first step in returning freedom to Floridians and opening the door again to much-needed scientific debate. And we've got a nerd narrative on this story from the Metaculous Prediction community. That says there's a 3% chance that any U.S. state will re-implement a general indoor mask mandate before February 1st, 2023. We got a week and a half. Yeah, they didn't give it much time. We got a week and a half. We can do this. Come on. Let's get another lockdown. It was fun, right? Just start coughing in each other's faces. <laughs> I've got toddlers. We've, we've got that down over here. There you go. So you know you know the, you know the routine. Yeah. I've, I've had the toddler phase. <laughs> we know how to spread. We can spread some germs. Oh, yeah. I'm rooting for you, U.S. You can do it. France braces for a Black Thursday general strike. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Radio Free International, Republic World, France 24, and Euronews. France is preparing for a Black Thursday general strike this week as unions have called for a massive mobilization in protest against government changes to pensions. The government is attempting to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. 
The general strike, which is supported by many political parties, including the Greens, the French Communists, the Socialists, and the France Unbowed Party, would happen across multiple sectors, the first time the eight main unions have united fully in 12 years. It is believed that three-quarters of France's teachers will join the strike. The head of the CGT union, which represents European and international trade, expects several million people to demonstrate against the reform. The French government has said it will stand its ground and has called on workers to not paralyze the country. The reform is yet to be adopted in Parliament, and Macron's party, which does not hold a majority, is reliant on Les Républicains' party if the plan is to pass. Elizabeth Bourne, France's prime minister, told the National Assembly the country has no choice but to raise the retirement age because the number of working people has fallen behind the number of pensioners. Bourne added that balance must be restored, and it can be achieved by 2030 if this reform is enacted. Melissa, thank you for the facts out of France. We've got a left narrative attached to this story. It is provided by Le Monde. The determination and spirit shown by the unions and the left-leaning parties are not just an ideological attack against Macron's policies, but also a preemptive strike against the threat of Marine Le Pen's far-right politics. The risk of the Reassemblement National is on everyone's mind, and to fight against such danger via strikes and protests is no longer a moral struggle, but a moral obligation. The right narrative is written by Le Figaro. While the central parties, with the help of the left, seek to use the strikes to pressure the government, there's no guarantee of success. Much is dependent on whether the unions will decide to follow up on their protests, which will only be decided on the evening of the demonstrations. Does it sound a little bit like a generational skirmish is happening behind the scenes here, right? That was like, we're raising the retirement age two years because not enough people are working. <laughs> millennials. <laughs> Those millennials are so lazy. Wait, are you aren't you a millennial? Uh, I gotta go. The Trump campaign has asked Facebook for reinstatement. And here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Business Insider, CNN, Daily Caller, and Independent. With his eye on the 2024 election, former President Trump is seeking to regain access to his Facebook account which has been suspended for two years. Trump's campaign has reportedly sent a formal petition to Facebook's parent company, Meta, asking it to unblock his account. Trump was banned from Twitter and Facebook following the January 6, 2021 Capitol riots, with Twitter rendering a permanent suspension while Facebook said it would review Trump's account in two years. New Twitter CEO Elon Musk reinstated Trump's account last November. With his two-year review coming up, Meta spokesperson Andy Stone said the company will render a decision on the former president's account in the coming weeks. Trump's campaign wrote a letter asking his account to be reinstated on grounds of free speech and open political discourse. The campaign argued that maintaining Trump's ban would constitute an inappropriate interference in the American political and election process, given that he is a political candidate. People close to Trump say he is probably coming back to Twitter, but has been seeking advice on his social media strategy. He has not tweeted since he was reinstated two months ago. After being suspended from the major platforms, Trump started using his own website, Truth Social. Though he had far greater reach on Twitter and Facebook, 88 million and 34 million followers respectively, compared to 4.8 million on his platform. 
Thank you, Adam, for the facts. We'll start the spin with the Democratic narrative from the office of Adam Schiff. Trump is too dangerous to be given a platform to spew hatred and misinformation to hundreds of millions of people. The last time he was on Twitter and Facebook, he instigated an insurrection and attack on America's citadel of democracy. He had a chance, but quickly proved he can't be trusted with a powerful platform. And our Republican narrative is provided by Breitbart. Trump cannot reasonably be held responsible for the January 6th violence and must be reinstated on Facebook as he campaigns in 2024. Free speech is the bedrock of the U.S. political system and is America's most fundamental freedom. Tech oligarchs cannot be the ultimate arbiter of who gets to speak their minds, especially when it comes to political candidates. And the nerds are speaking up on this story from Metaculus. We have a narrative saying there's a 33% chance that Donald Trump will tweet before March 1st, 2023. Ooh, I'm on pins and needles. One month left. I think he actually just now tweeted. Oops. (laughs) Canada recommends a maximum of two drinks per week. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CBC, The Star, Canada Today, and CTV News. The Canadian government announced new national recommendations that say zero alcohol is the only risk-free approach to drinking. The guidance says two drinks each week is deemed low risk, a steep drop from the previous recommendation. The previous recommendations from 2011 called for limiting consumption to 15 drinks per week for men and 10 drinks per week for women. These new recommendations reflect data from studies conducted over the last decade that link even small amounts of alcohol to multiple types of cancer. The Canadian Center on Substance Use and Addiction recently published a report stating that alcohol is a carcinogen associated with seven types of cancer, most notably breast and colon cancer. In addition, alcohol is associated with heart and liver disease, dementia, and lower respiratory infections. Health Canada funded the new report and suggested mandatory warning labels for all alcoholic beverages. Aaron Hobbin, a senior scientist with Public Health Ontario, said, The main message from this new guidance is that any amount of alcohol is not good for your health. According to the new guidance, having more than two standard drinks, a 12-ounce serving of 5% or a 5-ounce glass of 12% alcohol, increases the risk for negative outcomes, including cancer. The new guidelines are also designed to increase overall awareness of alcohol-related health issues and will make it easier for the public to count their drinks and assess their individual levels of risk. Thank you, Melissa. We have a couple narrative spins related to this story. Narrative A is provided by The Star. This new guidance is based on scientific evidence. If these policies are implemented, there's a chance to reduce alcohol-related harms and promote health and wellness in Canada. To be successful, warning labels on bottles and cans should go hand-in-hand with stronger regulations of alcohol advertising and marketing, restrictions on the availability, and a minimum price. And Narrative B is provided by BBC. The new guidelines put Canada out of step with other Western nations. In Australia, the 2020 national guidance recommends no more than 10 standard drinks per week. France suggests the same. The U.S. recommendation is no more than two drinks a day for men and one for women, while the U.K. says no more than 14 units. It remains to be seen whether Canadians, who love their beer almost as much as their hockey, will accept these recommendations. 
I would love to see Bob and Doug McKenzie come out and do a sketch with regards to All this. right. <laughs> would be really funny to have them like their reunion. Right. Yeah, I'm only having two. I'm only having hey, two. Hey. Oh, oh, we're uh, we're on our weekly uh, uh, maximum uh, amount. Hey, that's two cases of beer, eh? <laughs> our final story today comes from the island of St. Martin, and they plan to cull their entire vervet monkey population. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by Guardian, Daily Herald, and Nature Foundations. In the Eastern Caribbean, the government of St. Martin has approved a plan to exterminate its entire population of vervet monkeys, a species deemed invasive on the Dutch territorial island. The St. Martin Nature Foundation's Invasive Species Project will entrap and euthanize more than 450 monkeys inhabiting the island. Authorities from the Nature Foundation say that since the species isn't native to the island, it has no natural predators to keep population sizes in check. The monkeys are also detrimental to the native ecosystem of the island, threatening bird populations and destroying the livelihoods of farmers by raiding crops. The Nature Foundation began working with the vervet population in 2020. Their work led to the development of a population management plan that was ultimately approved in June of 2022. This allowed the organization to begin capturing the monkeys with a hired ranger. Vervet monkeys are native to southern and eastern Africa, but can also be found in some Caribbean islands as well as in some places in South America. The species is believed to have been first introduced to the region in the 17th century when European settlers were said to have imported the monkeys to be traded as exotic pets. Thank you, Adam, for the facts on that final story. We'll start the narratives with the narrative A from Republic World. Species management is an important aspect of keeping the island of St. Martin healthy. While regrettable, in order to do this, the vervet monkey population needs to be culled to avoid it growing out of control. The species is prolific and not in danger of going extinct. Culling the monkey population is the best plan possible. And Narrative B is provided by The Guardian. Exterminating the entire vervet monkey population is unnecessary and cruel. The population can be kept in check in other ways, by sterilizing the existing monkeys, or better managing resources to prevent them from turning to endangered bird eggs or destroying agriculture. A harmonious existence between the monkeys and humans on the island is possible. Monkeys and people living together, I think Charlton Heston proved that that just never does work out for the best. Yeah, it didn't, didn't work out too well there. You know, because the monkeys are going to start riding horses. They'll start wearing armor. And, Enslaving the human population. You, you know, know, it's it, it, it's it's got an inevitable ending. It starts on an island, but, you know, then it only grows. So I'm, yeah, I'm with you there. You got to put the monkeys in their place when you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, January 19th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which one are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Bye.